questions you never, never dared to ask about the Dharma. Can you uh, discuss your thoughts around wise speech? So I think it comes from the text where it says that um, we have in our mouth uh, an axe and uh, yeah, I think just that is a powerful uh, kind of image and um, and so with an axe uh, of course you can uh, destroy things but it's also the most amazing technical tool to build and so it you know it can go both ways the axe in the mouth so being aware of this suddenly it becomes very uh, the use of language become uh, I don't know important or uh, it's powerful I see it almost as nuclear power sexual energy speech nuclear powers they can uh, speech can uh, accompany clarify guide free protect, make visible, name, and yeah, it can hide, can confuse. So here this week, uh, we've been trying to use uh, speech in the, um, to the best of our human ability, try to use speech in a way that is uh, supportive, uh, enlightening, you know, something like this. And so it's a good question as we go back home, you know, to um, take it on as practice, you know, mix it with mindfulness, be awake to speech and the inten intention in speech, before speech, during speech, after speech, without judgment, but great uh, curiosity and interest. And inner speech also. It's a really interesting thing to watch, the abuse of it, tone, uh, intention, uh, number of words. <laughs> so that's a few thoughts on speech. Would you comment about the difference between impermanence and conditionality? Um, the first thing that I makes me think of is how our minds work and how our minds are always trying to clarify and make discrete and differentiate. There's a tendency we want to, to know what's this, what's this, to compare, which is revealed in the question and it's revealed in so many of our questions and the way as our minds work. Um, and I'm saying that because these two words, which have slightly different meanings, can be explained slightly differently, are also very similar and there's a lot of sharedness about them. And uh, as with a number of the other things that I'm going to say, um, it, it's not our ex our life, our, our true life experience. When we examine it closely, is not very much black and white, but it's enormously the shades of grey. 
So that said, conditionality and impermanence. So um, impermanence, things changing, anicca, is a truth that can be seen, it can be experienced directly in a multitude of ways, minutely, minusculely, vibrations, flickerings, mountain ranges, you know, the whole, everything. We understand technically what that means. And the reason that, that, um, that I, I mean, I don't know who you are and what your mind was saying, but conditionality is so closely related to this because what um, is going on as things are changing is conditions are changing. And so appearances are changing. And so situations are changing and moods are changing and even thoughts are changing because states are changing. And so um, the conditions are always being created every second by a multitude of other conditions. It's like the state of everything is so unstable. And so conditioning of things is, the par is part of why changing is always happening. They, they're together, these things. The conditionality speaks to how one thing influences another, the causes of change. Change, and each other description of change is the experience that this is unstable, this is unreliable, this will not last, to help us release the, um, the mistaken belief and tendency to want to believe that this is going to be satisfying, this thing that I want to get or this way I'd like to feel. When we see that in terms of, it's like the different lenses slightly, in terms of change, unreliability, or, um, yeah, I just leave it at that for the moment, then the tendency to keep grasping, when we see that it's impossible to grasp, or we grasp something and then it's changed, and so the satisfaction that we were looking for is unreliable and unstable, that's what keeps being seen over and over. Then the, the conviction that grasping is worthwhile thins out, you know, just like dries up, withers. The reason for this change is that we realize nothing is a thing by itself, nothing stands alone, nothing is an island, I'm not an island, nothing. We're all in fact affecting and co-creating all the time. We start realizing everything's in a secret relationship with everything. And so that's, uh, how could it not then be always influenced and always influencing? And not just the reason this is here, but the other part of change, but certainly conditionality, is that this current, whatever it is, situation, including my axe in my mouth in this moment, is a condition for the next and the next. And so everything is con contributing to everything. In one way, it can provide some reassurance to think, well, how could it be otherwise? It's been all these conditions have made this come into being, which helps me stop wishing it were different. But m I would say more importantly, the whole understanding of karma is my contribution, is also creating more conditions, helping change different conditions, and has outcomes and impacts and, and uh, residual effects, makes waves. And that part, what part am I contributing to, becomes really our responsibility, you know, to, to consider that we are creating something we're at least influencing the creation that we're co-creating. So they are they belong together in an understanding. When you only understand one, you'll understand the other. But they are not exactly the same. They're just close relatives, I'd say. Those are my thoughts on What are the Dharma teachers that inspire you in your practice and how so? So uh, I've named um, Joseph Goldstein uh, a number of times here this week. So um, Joseph is the person with whom I've practiced the most as a retreatant, you know, sitting uh, retreats uh, with him as a teacher. And uh, one also um, uh, was my, uh, you know, uh, 
mentor trainer for becoming becoming a teacher and so yeah he's one is definitely the biggest influence i think and uh, how is he inspiring me I like Joseph uh, is very much unpretentious has um, what appears to be a very natural almost like kind of common sense um, wisdom um, natural curiosity it's just his mind is uh, kind of spontaneously I mean it probably trained it but how it appears to me in life is the curious but simply curious, just curious. I spent many hours actually sitting in his um, gr uh, meetings with him. So he would meet uh, people, practitioners like us, and I would just be in the corner watching him. And I liked his, um, he has a kind of um, a fearlessness that is not like fearless looking, it's just Somebody comes and I'm like, oh my God, the Dharma is not gonna not gonna work for this. This is too big, you know, too too much confusion or too afflicted the person. And you know, there's a kind of a equanimity, curiosity that is always there. It's like, hmm, you know, and it's curious. And after meeting the person, I'm like, do you think they can get out of this? And I was like, yeah, it's interesting. Like, let's see if they, c you know, there's an interest. <laughs> His interest, and he's always like, yeah, I think so. Like, uh, almost like laid back. So it's, uh, it's a pretty, all these qualities of trust, uh, confidence, equanimity, curiosity, are kind of well integrated. They're not explosive. Do you, know, do you see what I mean? It's just there, and it's always there, it seems. He's always interested in what's happening. And I like how it's been... Uh, integrated in him and I like watching this you know at lunchtime like it it's there is interested by people even in situations you know going how he wants or not I mean I don't want to make it uh, like make him perfect I have seen also some shadow sides over the years but there's a yeah it's an inspiration for the integration of a practice of evenness stability that is not big display you know it's, uh, it's the simplicity i enjoy as well can you talk about belonging and a feeling of belonging and its difference from independence and self-sufficiency So, I think f um, about belonging, sometimes what really helps me if I'm interested in something and curious about what's a state like, like that, um, I, I'll think, what about the absence of that? And somehow when I think of the absence, it makes the presence of something clearer. I think presences and absences are very useful. And so, when there's no sense of belonging, when there's a sense that you just don't belong somewhere, th what's that feel like? And that, that can be really painful. You know, when there's depression, one of the characteristics is just to feel excluded and not, you know, able to participate, not belonging. And so belonging is the opposite of that. It's a sense of um, being welcomed, you know, being enough to be with. Um, and we've all got our own senses of that and some people want that more and some people thrive on it more than others and sometimes it's a fear of being you know lonely and that you know all of those kinds of things and and so it is part of that can then go into the the need and the dependence and so um when there is a dependence on anything anything there's great vulnerability because there's some kind of demand, expectation, requirement, which is completely a setup for, you know, 
disappointment to say the least you know when we rely on someone and they let us down we rely on someone we want to trust something and it you know our trust is broken it can be shattering and so dependence on anything one of the things that we learn as we practice one of the fruits of practicing the more understanding grows the more is seen is an uh, independence from the ups and downs of life so that we aren't made happy when it goes up and bummed when it goes down because we have enough understanding that it, it we can enjoy it when it goes up and we can be sad and and grieve when it when loss happens without that without being so dependent on it that we then can't stand it when it goes down and we have to have it go up kind of that degree of it so uh, independence doesn't mean not connecting and not enjoying the connection but not having to have the connection you know where we feel we belong so that we aren't okay when we aren't belonging in those moments when we aren't connecting so it's it's an interesting question and a good question for reflection about how much is enough of anything you know when does it back into the shades of gray when does you know the the natural more in some than others um feeling of connection then becomes a have to have becomes a requirement and uh i don't know i remember i got married a couple of times and uh the first time lasted a year we were young and but we had in our wedding ceremony we used the uh, po poem by Khalil Gibran about you know be two trees and stand on your own and don't lean on each other be in each other provide shade for each other but don't be you know and uh, even now i remember that that was an important understanding i mean our, our marriage didn't last because we were young we were going in different directions in our early 20s but but thinking even then the wisdom of such a thing and so yeah self sufficiency to an extent but then we're all conditioned what is self sufficiency how are we islands and we're not we're all conditioned anyway and we all we need each other the buddha says you know that the th the three refuges are the refuge in the in the buddha the dharma and the sangha meaning we are nourished in our practicing we are inspired and we are it keeps us being able to go go keep going with whatever you know keep being here keep being available continue to stay present and not lose it or freak out or whatever um by reflecting on these three to the triple gem that awakening is possible this mind is trainable the view can become clear clearer and clearer uh, a buddha is a a cl clarity of perception that's what it it is isn't a person so much as a a being who's in a state of complete clarity freedom from all confusion and all greed and hatred and delusion and so on the dharma is the being with whatever is happening clearly without a spin without a an agenda imposed nothing imposed on what is of unfolding and when we can be with anything and everything where that is the dharma that's what it means is like things as they are whatever is going on and the third is the sense of when that's happening when there's clarity complete clarity of mind peaceful open connecting and there is then whatever is being seen is seen utterly for whatever it is and it's all being accommodated what then happens is sangha meaning what then happens is affection connection care it may be to a large degree it may be to a small degree but it's the same thing as and i was talking about yesterday the less selfing the less agenda is imposed and the less interference is in the space then there's love let go of all of that i just put that poem up on the board by the way those who asked for those two poems are on the board e e cummings you know so comes love so self sufficiency meaning not dependence but not complete independence because isolation is only it isn't actually the truth the truth is there is we are all sharing this life we are all co-creating and we are all affecting and receiving impacts from each other so we aren't there isn't the ideal of complete self-sufficiency
That would be one extreme, and the other extreme would be utter dependence and therefore vulnerability, so somewhere in there. It's an interesting area to be reflecting upon. After I uh, spoke about Joseph, I had the, the story I told you yesterday evening. I, I, I thought it could be interesting. <laughs> I spent a few months struggling with something, like a, a thing I was struggling. Do I do it? No, no. And uh, in September, I ran into Joseph. And uh, how are you doing? So I said, oh, this this thing that I don't know what to do about it. And he really listened with interest. Oh, yeah, and this and that. And at the end, he, he, you know, he paused when I had finished telling him the story, and he was like, hmm, well, I think you're going to have to um, let it go at some point. Do you prefer letting it go now or later? <laughs> <laughs> and when he said that, it really, like, it, the thing got completely released. <laughs> and it suddenly was a non-issue, non-event, you know, like, I, I love the clarity, like, you're going to have to <laughs> let it go at some point. Do you prefer now or later? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, the conditions probably were right for this understanding to... to but, uh, yeah, so that's a little Joseph story. Okay, um, the question I ask myself each morning... How do I balance the joy of the sweet air of this breath, hearing the sounds of the birds, watching the swoop of sparrows, seeing the dandelions as for the first time and the thrill of a child on a swing, feeling love? How do I balance this with the catastrophes uh, for the future, for my grandchildren and most species that today's... Uh, consuming will cause. Underneath it's written, reluctant to ask, is it wrong speech, unhelpful, uh, feel free to not respond. I will respond, or try to, for sure. So no, this is not right, it seems absolutely like uh, at the heart of right speech, to raise concern, uh, you know, about um, you know, it's what I read here is about both about how to practice and also about addressing uh, suffering. You know, the Dharma is about suffering and the end of suffering. It would be really uh, mistaken to think that it's uh, only about what's happening in this little field here. That's how I understand it. Um, so, yeah, how to... Um, balance the joy and the um, capacity to um, the, the looking at suffering, I think uh, mindfulness provides the answer. Mm. And so um, in practice, I think you, we could think of it maybe as uh, half of the job is to notice what is not working and be able to be with it, consider it without falling into despair, lack of sleep, hate, uh, confusion. So that's a lot of work there. To and the other half of the practice is being able to uh, be nourished and uh, see what is actually working. So if somebody is only in one side of reality like this, there's delusion. You know, it's all good, it's so beautiful, yeah, yeah, well, no, you know. So compassion seems to be saying, hey, come in the battlefield, because it's not that pretty, you know, and it is also. And if somebody is just seeing what is uh, not working, there's somewhere, you know, joy seems to be maybe not heard, but calling, hey, come this way, it's going to be helpful for you. And so the balance uh, of the two in order to respond, engage, you know, in a way that uh, uh, we're not uh, losing our 
our, our energy in worry and uh, it needs a lot of um, yeah equanimity uh, balance to actually be able to see name and engage with what's uh, what's happening uh, be it yeah the state of the the uh, planet the the environment nature or racism or sexism or all different kinds of uh, isms that are happening and in, uh, in the world so um and my sense is the practice we do here this week, that's my understanding, is it's serving exactly this. That balance of calm and uh, interest is to turn towards this psyche and heart, but also to turn towards how are we together, how are we on this big uh, planet together, and to uh, be able to recognize what I can do, what I can what I, with my speech, with my body, where can I play, use my, how can I use my body to um, make statement or contribute in some ways. And so when we see that the heart is sinking, then it's a sign that we need to nourish it in some ways. And if it becomes exuberant and, uh, you know, lust, it's all good, it's all good, you know. Uh, maybe we can hear a friend or somebody that's going to tap on our shoulder and say, hey, come down here, you know, there's shit happening. You know, so anyway, a few words on this. I've got a couple of little ones before I'll do a, a slightly bigger one. These are just requests for books. Could you suggest any particular Buddhist teaching or Vipassana teacher that in your experience has been helpful for dealing with the ultimate dukkha-ing of addictions? Thank you. The one that popped into mind is a book uh, written by um, a man who I've known for many, many years, who's an, an MD in Vancouver, and uh, I used to work with him delivering babies. I've known him for a long time in that capacity. His name is Gabor Mate, and he has a book called In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts. And it's all about addictions, because he's worked in Vancouver, the downtown east side, with some of the you know, most desperate cases of addictions. And, and so he comes from a... He's got a general practitioner's background and a psychology background and a Buddhist background, so it's just devoted to that whole topic. He's very skillful. You can listen to him on YouTube, Gabor, G-A-B-O-R, Mate, M-A-T-E. That's the first one and the, mo the one that most obvious that pops to mind. Um, and then there is Ke Kevin Griffin? Kevin Griffin. Griffith? Griffin? Who works um, teaching... Um, mindfulness practices um, in hand in glove with uh, AA, and uh, and so he, he and, and I've never met him or done any of his workshops or read his material, but he's very well known, and in the Vipassana world. So that would be another. And I don't remember the names. Do you know the name of anyone know a name of a book that or a program that he's taught? Yes, it had that flavor to it. Yes. Twelve steps. Something about twelve steps. I'm sorry we can't be more clear. It's Kevin Griffin. One breath at a time. One breath at a time. Kevin Griffin. Griffin. Maybe Noah. Those are both. Then of course there may be others. Those are the ones that pop to mind. That's all I can think of. Noah. Uh, Yes, Noah Levine, Against the Stream. Noah Levine, that's Stephen Levine's son. Hmm? Refuge Recovery. Thank you, Gillian. Noah Levine, Refuge Recovery. And then there's another request for a book here. Um, uh, I'll go to the end of the question. Um, what um, has been challenging for me is... Um, with the Dharma is either forgetting what I have been told or not understanding it. Can you recommend any books? Well, one thing to say that I said to somebody else today is that um, 
When we listen to the Dharma, what I think happens, well, what certainly happens to me um, is I receive it, but I think I receive it, when it seems to me I receive it in the right hemisphere of my mind. So I receive, it goes right in. And so I get the impression and I go like, yeah, 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 lovely. But five minutes later, I can't tell you what on earth was said. You know, because it doesn't land with my fingers, it goes straight into the palm, as it were. And uh, I just want to respond to this person, because maybe that's part of your experience, a sense of like, so how do I get my head around that, and where is the information? And Anyway, in reply to that question, there's three books that I'm going to suggest. Um, for people who want to understand the principle, basically, how it works, and, uh, and then a very thorough one. So these are the first that popped into my mind, and these are ones that I suggest to people who are wanting to understand how and why the Dharma. And this first one is called Buddhism Without Beliefs, and it's written by an Englishman, Stephen Batchelor. Happens to be one of my favorite authors. I like the way he writes. Buddhism Without Beliefs, Stephen Batchelor. And then there's Mindfulness in Plain English, written by Bhante Gunaratana, you know, Sri Lankan monk who lives in Virginia. And uh, again, it really clearly explains why mindfulness. And then a really thorough book, and we can't help but recommend it. I too have studied, not quite as extensively as um, Pascal has with Joseph, but Joseph has this beautiful, big, thorough explanation book called Mindfulness. And uh, it's just very clear and very thoroughly laid out. So if you want one book, that's a good one. The second one is um, mindfulness. mindfulness in Plain English. Mindfulness in Plain English. Bhante, which means um, your, holy, your holy one, um, monastic, B-H-A-N-T-E, Gunaratana, G-U-N-A-R-A-T-A-N-A. It's all A's other than the first U. Gunaratana. I'll do one. I'll do one more. I'll do more a reflective one. Um, hold on, hold on. <laughs> uh, I can't remember the rules of the game. <laughs> oh, you do three. I do one. Okay. <laughs> I want to get reflective, not just factual. Sorry. Is that okay? Yeah, I'm having, uh, my turn is coming. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, in offering metta for the benefit of all beings, all beings being underlined, we are, in, we are including all beings from the sea, the rivers, the earth, the soil, the air, all beings, seen or unseen, part of the fragile, intricate web of life. Please speak to how metta can inform actions for the benefit of all beings. One thing that I do with this idea of all beings is I change the word all to any. Because for me, one of the things about all, it feels like I'm supposed to think of them all at once, and it's impossible. <laughs> and, you know, like I don't even know anything about what all beings are. I don't even know the names of the several trillion who live inside my one little body, for instance. You know, like I don't. And so it's like it just goes into like overwhelm, and then it, then it is inhibitive. And so the point of this and the, the idea behind all beings, it's any beings, it's, it's to um, bring us to be aware that um, two things, I guess. One is the sense of vastness that's possible of care, that care isn't dependent on anything, anyone, any qualification, any having to know, any having to have any particular relationship with, any, there's, it's un conditional and unconditioned and so it's unlimited and so it brings up the the idea which i mentioned one of these days something when i was talking about metta i was talking about probably the night I, the day i was talking about karuna um that it's our minds which limit 
our minds which bring a sense of boundary, which is a sense of inclusion and exclusion or division or worthiness or dismissiveness and all of the, the ways that we discriminate. And the idea of metta, which is a Brahma Vihara, an abiding when one's in the state of the Brahma states, you know, the, the free states, the wholesome states, is there is no mind which does such discriminating, which does any limiting. And so no being anywhere ever could be possibly disqualified or unavailable for this care. So it's speaking to, to observe how we are the limiting factor of love. Love itself, care itself, isn't egotistical, therefore it isn't limited in any way to anything, from anything, about anything. There's no such limit. Limitless. And so all really does mean whomever and whatever. It means all in a sense of all inclusivity, but it doesn't have to, you don't have to feel like, oh, I've got to sit here and wish every worm between here and Alaska, you know, like that's too much. There's too much, our little minds aren't, we, we haven't evolved the capacity to take on more than a certain amount of information, certain amount of news of a certain amount of people. We're, we're still, evolutionary-wise, we're still in the village stage, you know, and 150 people max. And so reading the news just numbs us right out because it's way too much data. You know, we can't do it. Living in an urban setting is overwhelming and causing people to become, you know, anxious and depressed just because it's overwhelming. And so it doesn't mean, it, doesn't, it isn't a compulsion, it isn't an instruction. It's an inquiry to see about what, what is boundary and what is the meaning of when I can only do so much. What am I believing that's possible for myself and, and getting into the area of, of um, the untruth or exploring is it true that I can only or this is in, you know this is enough and no more that area I've got part two coming up after when it's my next turn <laughs> because this blows right into this next area so I'll just continue more in this theme later if later comes <laughs> <laughs> I love the fullness of my life. Still, I decided to come to this retreat. <laughs> I love the fullness of my life. With many interests, activities, relationships, I savor experiences experiencing the different senses. I don't want to live in retreat mode more than please talk further on skills, tools to bring this mindfulness focus and calm into everyday, everyday busy, full lives. Yeah, yeah so, so, I mean, it could be a lifestyle for some people. It's a lifestyle that's very rare not the number of people on the planet who have this as a lifestyle, you know. It's more, I see it more as a laboratory. It's a, we retreat for a little bit to create the right conditions for a particular kind of exploration of the heart-mind. This exploration is in order uh, to go back to our lives and then uh, participate and contribute. And uh, so I agree with this, with a lot of this. Uh, full lives, many things happening, how to bring the skills. Well, I think, uh, you know, the we talked about uh, the body. The body is wherever we're going. The mind states are. And so it's very, very applicable. You know, where I am, I can wake up to uh, what is happening in the now. And... Um, I think that to enjoy my life, mindfulness is welcomed. Because then when I'm with somebody, I can really be there instead of being with the next thing that I have to do on my list. You know, there's an availability that is possible with mindfulness to what is happening. It seems like um, bringing presence to the difficult circumstances will give me access to uh, 
instead of a shut-down mind, reactive mind, to a creative mind, more pliable, more su- supple. Um, so it's welcome, the practice of being awake where I am, feeling the sensations, feeling the body are welcomed uh, in the different situation, beautiful, difficult. Mm. There was something else I had in mind. Yeah, and um, in uh, the development of wisdom, so there's many kinds of discernment, huh? the capacity to discern between what is helpful, what is not, kusala, akusala, the wisdom that is the discernment to recognize the ephemerality, conditioned nature of the... So that's a particular kind of discernment, wisdom. There's another particular kind of uh, discernment, which is the capacity to recognize opportunities for practice. And so as we go back in our lives, maybe we think it's only on retreat, or it's only in sitting, and we discover it could be with eyes open while moving. Oh, it's not only on retreat, it's uh, at home also. Oh, it's when I'm preparing the meal. Oh, all these activities that I'm, that I'm alone, where I'm alone could be really good places to bring presence instead of absence of mindedness, <laughs> you know? And then we find, oh, when I'm with this person, it's a good time to be there. Ah. And so in this way, the life keeps opening. Uh, that's the... Um, uh, development of the practice is I'm finding out, oh, here too, here too. And so I can bring this here and here and here. Um, so these are a few of the um, the thoughts. Also, what I've noticed, is is that true also for you? I don't know. But I've noticed that when I'm around conscious beings, I feel more safe. When I'm around somebody who's unconscious about their intentions or their mind states, it's often I have to carry it for them, you know. And similarly, when I'm unconscious, I've seen people carry stuff for me or they have to be conscious for me because I'm not, you know. And so, you know, somebody who's unconscious of their body, you're like, oh, honey, you're right in the middle of where everybody's moving by, you know. And, oh, you know. So this, or somebody who's angry, and they're unconscious of it. I'm fine. I'm totally fine. No, no, doesn't bother me at all. So I have to be conscious of your anger, because you are unconscious, you know? And so, uh, or conscious of your biases, because you are unconscious of them. And so it feels that it's a good work as a citizen, as a, you know, neighbor, as a, member of a family to become conscious of what's happening in the field inside of me. It, I think it's the best thing I can offer to any situation I'm part of, uh, being more more conscious. Of course it's a practice. It's not uh, based on will. Now I'll be conscious. It's something that is developmental. And so that's a really great gift to give to any situation, a little bit more consciousness of what's happening uh, to us. And we, we both will speak more to this. We always do as the retreat winds down in the last day. And so just so that you know there will be other things we'll think of to say. So these, these are three that are all related. So <laughs> We agreed. <laughs> mm. Providing service to benefit others is founded on kindness and compassion. Healthy boundaries are necessary when expressing these, gu- these qualities. Sometimes that can be difficult to communicate our boundaries to others. What qualities of mind are essential, keeping in mind both self and others? Sometimes mindfulness reveals quite direct examples of creating our own suffering. However, some activities like going to fantasy land during a sit or browsing the web might feel soothing in the short term, but ultimately aren't a nourishing choice. How might mindfulness help us feel into which of the activities are false friends? And further tools for self-nurturing. What about the difference between selfish, me first, and self-care? You know that. So that's the...
part two um, of metta. Uh, they're all in, you know, what what is really helpful to ourselves? What do we need? How do we take care of ourselves? How do we not give ourselves away? How do we be kind? How do we be kind enough, too kind? What is all of that? So, um, and first thing that pops into mind is is the, the Buddha saying, you know, clearly, I've said this, this retreat, is there is no one in the universe, the entire universe, any more worthy of your care than yourself. And the point of this is to, is to reach the place, is to reach an understanding whenever we can, remind ourselves that there is no such thing as better or worse or more or less valuable or more or less worthy. There isn't any difference between us all, all of us are vulnerable, all of us want to be happy, all of us want to be seen and loved and cared for, whoever, whatever, whatever the situation. There's no difference in that way as far as the, our validity about being vulnerable, sensitive beings. Um, and it's nothing to do with anything other than we're all beings. And when we wonder if I should do more for somebody else and then forget myself, then I'm not equating, I'm not giving myself sufficient there. I'm sacrificing myself and I will suffer. I will run down and I won't be able to continue doing it. It's one of the challenges of all caregiving. I always think of the thing on the airplanes, you know, and we fly around doing this quite a bit. And so it always says, when the oxygen masks drop, put your oxygen mask on first and then help the next person. You know, because you, otherwise <laughs> you'll have passed out and that won't be very useful. So it's the same, that sort of idea, because we either elevate or whatever the opposite is, devalue ourselves or the other. Selfishness is when I don't consider the other and I'm full of my own, you know, and self-sacrificing is in reverse, neither of which are A, sustainable and B, actually awake. The reality when we're really awake is there isn't any difference. And so we, from that place, when I'm tired and I'm working to help somebody and help situation and I can't keep doing it, then I'm going to stop doing it so I can rest, so I can continue doing it tomorrow or whatever. That's, it's not selfish. It's not indulgent. It's true. You know, we're only limited in our resources. It's not about the self. This isn't an ego decision. This is realistic. It's about energy. It's not about me. And you, we bring the ego in there and get confused. And, uh, and at times we give ourselves permission to do activities which may be only a short-term gain, but may serve some sense of self-respect, even if we know in the long term that it isn't a long term, it's a band-aid remedy to browse the web, let's say, if it makes us feel good, if we're feeling lonely or depressed, or the things that we do to nourish ourselves. Some of those are going to be wiser nourishment, they're going to deeply nourish and some are going to be superficial nourishment and, and then, you know, the chocolate's going to deplete the blood sugar thing and the insulin's going to be screwed up. And so it felt good though for a little while. And so I, one, of the, one of the pieces of this question is that we want, out of those kinds of questions and many of our questions, we want to be Perfect. We want to know so we can do it right. So we don't have to go through all of this stumbling and fumbling along to get it together, you know. And you know what? <laughs> the name of the game is fumbling. There's a book, Fumbling Towards Enlightenment, you know, because we can only think ourselves there. It's a theoretical, you know, goal-oriented, trying to get ahead of ourselves. Tell us the answer so I don't have to learn for myself, you know, sort of. And we only, our life is one long learning. It's high school. A Russian friend of mine would talk about our gathering, spiritual gatherings. This is many, many years ago. He says, we're going to high school. <laughs> so we can learn the, these things. And you can't learn from someone else's having learned even, even though other people will tell you their you know, experiences and maybe it's going to be somewhat helpful. It's, it's by experience. So here's a little anecdotal thing. So the student went to the master and the master was waxing eloquent about something or other, and the student was like, wow, that's, that's great. How do I... How do, how do I get that from... How do I experience that from my... Uh, you know, how can I have... And the, the answer is... Um, oh, let me get this right. 
the two lines which are important is one is um, <laughs> such a great little one too I can't remember what the first one is but anyways <laughs> there's three questions and three answers so the first answer I've forgotten the second answer is by experience oh yeah that makes sense okay. so how do I get how do I get how do I I'm <laughs> sorry <laughs> Okay, I think it's like this. <laughs> by experience. So, oh, that sounds right. So how do I get the experience? By um, making good decisions. So that sounds great. How do I make good decisions? <laughs> by making bad decisions. <laughs> because there's no other way we, we can learn, is we learn by our trials and errors, mostly the errors part. And so ask away... But the answer really is, you know, how we know if this is a wise decision and if this was sufficiently nourishing for myself or if it wasn't so skillful is that there'll be a long-term impact and there'll be a long-term cost and it will be worthwhile or not worthwhile in your experience yourself as you'll find. We can't jump ahead. We can't get the theory and then live by that theoretical answer. It's not the way life unfolds in truth. And so just take care, we, taking care of ourselves isn't selfish. It's the same thing that Pascal's just saying. We're participants here. And if we don't take care of ourselves and our speech and our practice and our steadiness, then our contribution is going to be clumsy and inappropriate and unskillful and painful. And so it's our practice is our gift to the world. Our consciousness is how we contribute the best we can. And the best we can some days isn't that great, you know, and we're all struggling along. Remember, I quoted this the other day, with as much courage and dignity and style and skill and care as we can in any moment. And sometimes we don't have that much of it, and other times there's more. And so this, it's not a straight line, there isn't a goal, and we're not going to get it. And we're going to keep stumbling and fumbling and learning and growing and becoming wiser in a kind of... <laughs> erratic way but it nevertheless is is effective because we know as we look back over time I definitely am not the same way and I don't have the same limits and my fuse is not as short and I don't get so triggered as I did six months ago ten years ago in these kinds of scenarios so we know we can trust the unfolding but it's very not linear and not goal-oriented and not selfish it's self-care, but when it's full of myself and dismissing others, then there's too much self part, and that it, that's where it goes into the gray shades of selfish. And it's, it's not black or white. This isn't wrong and this is right. These are explorations. They aren't answerable to some extent. They're great asking questions to explore for ourselves. Great. Keep asking. Something that uh, came to mind as uh, you were speaking, uh, Heather, that is a very um, kind of new uh, understanding or like a new um, kind of a concept or something. But anyway, I just want to name it maybe also for me to remind myself. And I think it could be useful here. And uh, I heard this. This is a gift from uh, Zenju Earthlin Manuel that I was talking about. And she was describing, I think for herself, that, um, and I recognize this in myself, that um, there might have been an idea that she wanted to, you know, apply the Eightfold Path or the practice on her life, you know, like, so how do I put practice in my life? And, and she's talking about how the path emerges in life, you know, the, the I don't know if you... And it was a new idea for me. It was like, oh, that's actually true. It's not like I'm going to apply all the Buddhist things on my life, you know. <laughs> it's uh, The path is emerging. Just watch it. It emerges because of uh, the sickness of a parent. It emerges because of a conflict with somebody. It emerges because of uh, time opens up. Uh, as a, you know, some, or it emerges. It's... Uh, 
So it's a, to me it's another view. Instead of trying to put the, the path on top of my life, I uh, agree humbly to see it emerge. You know, the, the path is uh, life. Anyway, it's just something that uh, I want to consider more. So there's two questions here that are related, and maybe I won't actually read them uh, completely, but uh, they're both about something I said earlier about intentions. And so there's one little phrase that I said, I think I said, uh, our um, uh, thoughts, activities of mind are uh, intentional, our actions of our bodies, like for example, This is intentional, it's an action of the body. And speech is intentional. So waking up is waking up to the intentions, huh? because the intention might be unconscious. And so in practice we want to become uh, aware of our intentions. I mean many other things, but intention is really important because it often has an ethical aspect to it. Huh? If I'm acting or speaking in greed or hatred, that's going to cause harm around me and inside of me. And so I was not saying uh, that our sensations that we feel are intentional. So there could be, a, I think there was maybe misunderstanding around this. And when a question is related to that, did you say that our sensations are intentional? No. The sensations are not intentional. The movements of the body, reaching, opening a door, uh, offering uh, uh, assistance, grabbing. Yeah? Uh, but this being said, I thought it raised, it raised the question for me. Oh, that's interesting because some of my sensations actually are related to my intentions. So I came on retreat intentionally. Yeah. And so, of course, my butt hurts. <laughs> you know, that's the result of the intention, you know. I, you know, if it involves sitting for long periods of time. So there's going to be sensations that I'm going to feel. They're going to be related to my intentions. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But not all of them, you know. But uh, another thing also that it said in the text and in, in the teachings, some of the sensations we feel, they do come from intention. They do come from mind states, for example. So if I'm developing uh, calm and joy here, the sensations in the body are going to be different. You know, it's going to, uh, when there is joy and it's sustained and cultivated, there's an experience, there can be an experience of lightness, of bubbliness. So it, but it, I'm not, you know, there's a disease will arise, it's not intentional. Uh, many things will arise, cold and weather, uh, as an impact on the sensations we feel. It's not, uh, there's many laws at play. The, laws, uh, the law of intention is at play, but the law of meteorology, hormonology, uh, many different laws are at place that, uh, and the Buddha was saying this, is everything is not karma in a way. It's not all intentional, you know. It, many things are uh, belong to the universe and many other laws, physics. Gravity is not intentional. <laughs> you know, it does what it does. And so one of the questions uh, here is about saying, did you say that our thoughts, speech and actions are intended to cultivate, maintain our sense of self? And so that I thought that was a really interesting question for me. So my, the way it hit me is that uh, met without attention, with superficial attention, habitual attention, everything will seem to prove, reinforce the me. You know, my thoughts, my action, I'm acting, I'm, and the more I actually bring in attention, curiosity, I slow down, uh, it will be revealed that the thoughts are not exactly mine, me, that they happen conditionally, yeah? 
and different things like this. Anyway, it's a tricky point, but uh, the thoughts are not, uh, in a way, yes, unlooked at, they will reaffirm, re-solidify the sense of self, but looked at, they will liberate, you know, suddenly we will, uh, they will, yeah, anyway, that's kind of complex for a little Q&A like this to, to get in something that uh, deep, but uh, infusing mindfulness anywhere, in any aspect of our life, will, uh, in the wake of mindfulness, there will be all the beautiful qualities that will follow. Wisdom, compassion, care, there. So infusing, that's the end, maybe the main message, infusing high quality attention anywhere will help liberate. And being habitual will hide stuff. And this concludes the evening. <laughs> Let's just keep going till midnight. <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to continue just a little bit. There's three here which I'm not going to read. <laughs> which I can answer really briefly, but I want to. Because I so appreciate your questions and, it's, and they're thoughtful questions. I, I appreciate that you thought about them as you wrote them. There. Um, and there, uh, you know, one says... Um, over time, it's talking about with practice over time, will, you know, I, I see this. Um, this one is, I want to be able to see the more subtlety and I want to be, I find myself caught in a thought. Is it possible to see that thought before it, you know, I've lost and gone, gone in it? And so it's about sort of progression of, of subtlety of seeing, all of them. And I just want to say that the mind does become more subtle as we train it. It does, it does, nuance is available where it wasn't before. The boxing gloves get thinner with practice. The, um, the speed with which we recognize something, we recognize it sooner. It just does happen as we get, we do get finer and clearer. And so uh, those, the kinds of things about how will I do this? How do I get better at this kind of thing? How do I see sooner, quicker? Which is the motivation is because we want to not be so confused. We, you know, how do we do it? Is the only answer, it's almost like my previous answer, keep practicing. It's in the seeing that things will reveal in their own time. We can't speed it up and just keep practicing. And yes, we do find that we see things quicker at times. And is, you know, first of all, it's like at midnight after we've said something six hours ago, we suddenly realize that was really dumb. You know, that was really, <gasps> I never even thought about that part of it when I said that, I feel terrible, that's hours later. And then we find ourselves with time. It's like you're, you're in the middle of saying something and then you're realizing their eyes are beginning to roll up and you're like, oh, this was not the right time to say this. And, and then later we find that we're just about to say something and you just know, your instinct is like, nope, this is not the time. They're not available this you know and that fineness that just comes with with practicing yes you know it we can't again think ourselves ahead we can't tell you how to do that to keep doing it and it comes along on its own trust your practice uh, these come from do we pr trust how this works and just keep keep looking and all will be revealed I would have loved sessions like this, mind you, 20 years ago, 30 years ago when I was practicing. There was no way of asking these kinds of questions. You just had to keep on going, you know, and then it started to show up anyway, so it, w it will all come clear. You know, we don't, we don't understand whatever it is that we understand because somebody told us. You know, even though you did have Joseph telling you great things, I didn't have them. Anyway, yeah, just in the, in the interest of time. Yeah, and I, th I think uh, I'll try uh, in the next couple of days to find ways to answer the other mm. questions. Mm. So I'm keeping mine. <laughs> 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 and uh, 
And uh, also there's one question, it's like technical, about the recordings that we do. And so I think, uh, Steve, is it, will the, a link be sent to people for them to, for anybody here to be, be able to listen? Yeah, so a link will be sent to you. Some of them might find their way on Dharma Seed that you might uh, decide that you might know. And somebody's asking also about the chanting in the morning and the chanting in the evening. So I'm wondering if tonight, uh, if there's some chanting, it couldn't be recorded. And Steve's been recorded. Oh, great. So, um, and I don't know if the one in the morning, one time it could be added somewhere. Or, But somebody was asking, so this chant, anyways, you can find it online. The words are there. It comes from uh, the Thai forest uh, tradition. Uh, in English, so on the site of um, Abayagi, uh, not Abayagiri, but uh, Amaravati, uh, the you could find the chanting book and find this. And if you, I know a link. Maybe I'll send to Steve yeah. a link where you can actually listen to it on YouTube. Being s- we uh, could put some chanted. resources up. We could put a piece of paper with some links written up. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. Okay. So anyway, we'll try to find a way that you can hear it chanted by uh, monastics and uh, uh, yeah so it's an expression of the qualities of the heart in the morning wishing well uh, compassion joy and benevolence okay so thank you everyone these were lovely questions and thank you for paying attention giving us your attention and I hope they have been helpful Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.